Welcome to this episode of the 929 English Podcast. It's so nice to be able to once again have a conversation with Rachel Sharansky Danziger. Hi, Rachel. It's wonderful to welcome you. Hi, Rabbi Adam. It's wonderful to be here. And in the theme of conversations, we've chosen in honor of this month of Elul, this month of tshuva, of returning to God and returning to ourselves, to talk about conversations, specifically conversations between human beings and God. And Rachel, of all the things we could have chosen to talk about during Elul, is conversations with God the most relevant thing to talk about? So naturally, there are a lot of topics. We could have talked about repentance. We could have talked about sin. Um, but I feel that those uh, obvious topics, while important, perhaps mislead us to, as to the nature of what this month is all about. Because as Rabbi Adin Steinsalz, who just passed away, a big loss to the Jewish world and the world in general, as he said in his book about tshuva, about return, Shiva is not just about bookkeeping and saying, I did this little thing right and this little thing wrong and I need to correct this thing and do more of that thing and just, you know, keep my columns uh, well balanced and all that. This makes it small. This makes the whole process um, too detail oriented and makes us lose its spirit, its, its soul. And the soul of the, of the process of return to God is an understanding that we need to make all of our life an arena of our relationship with God, with divinity, with what lies beyond ourselves, if you wish. And when we thought that, when we think about it, not in terms of what did I do wrong and what do I need to fix, but rather how can I have a better, greater relationship with God, with spirituality, with divinity this year, and we turn to the Hebrew Bible and, and ask it, what relationships with God should even look like, one of the obvious channels of um, such relationships between human beings and God in the Bible is conversation. We see conversations between people and God all the time. And by observing this, uh, perhaps we can learn something and take something out of it uh, for our own relationship with God, taking into account that in the modern world or the postmodern world as the case is, uh, we don't understand what God is in the same way as people in other times understood it necessarily. We don't even necessarily understand God in the same way, um, meaning you and I don't necessarily understand God in the same way. Yet, I believe that if we look at conversations with God in the Hebrew Bible, we can take something out of it that will be relevant across sectors and across theological positions. So with that in mind, I wanted to talk about conversations, and particularly today, I wanted to talk about a particular genre of conversation that appears uh, time and time again when God um, asks or entrusts a person in the Hebrew Bible with prophecy, and said person tries to reject this mission. I'd like to start with that. Okay, great. I mean, so we, inch ironically, maybe we would say, we're going to start with conversations, difficult conversations, conversations in which, in a sense, God challenges our leaders to rise to the occasion to accept the mission, and the leaders are 
hesitant to accept that mission. But sometimes from difficult conversations, you really figure out what conversations are all about and what our relationship with God needs to be. So let's look, Rachel, first. Yeah, let's look, Rachel, first at Moshe. I think, you know, in a sense, one of the most powerful conversations in the entire Tanakh between God and a human being is the first conversation between God and Moshe. When God says to Moshe, I want you to lead the Jewish people out of Egypt. And God says, it's not me, right? I can't do it. I'm not up to the task. And what do you make of that conversation? And how do we kind of move on from that conversation? I think the most striking aspect of that conversation, when God speaks to Moshe out of the burning bush and uh, entrusts him with the mission that will define the rest of Jewish history, that will reverberate through our laws, through our stories, through everything we are, the Exodus itself, What's fascinating is not that Moshe is overwhelmed and says in his words, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and free the Israelites from Egypt? Or later, um, why would they listen to me? And how would I prove to them that you sent me? What's amazing is not that Moshe feels overwhelmed, but rather the way God responds to it. And God doesn't respond dismissively. Moshe mounts one objection after another. He keeps saying, I can't do it. I'm not a good speaker. Uh, how will I prove to them that you sent me? How will I answer their questions when they ask me who you, who you, God, are and what's your name? And God answers him patiently time and time again. When Moshe says, who am I? God tells him, I will be with you. It doesn't matter that you feel inadequate or unworthy. I'll be there with you. When Moshe uh, says, how will I answer them if they ask who you are? He tells him, Tell them uh, that uh, I am I will be whatever I will be. If he says, how, when Moshe says, how will I prove that you sent me? He says, you have a rod, throw the rod, the rod will become a snake. Only when Moshe, after all these reassurances, still says, please send someone else, does God get somewhat angry and says, no, you have to go, and, uh, uh, but I will send Aharon, your brother, to help you out. So, my takeaway from that is that God doesn't expect blind compliance. God doesn't expect Moshe to simply capitulate and carry out the deed. God wants um, to help Moshe to do it. But God can't do that until Moshe gives him the opening by asking all these questions and revealing all these vulnerabilities, which is a very powerful uh, invitation for ourselves to do the same. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very interesting model of conversation. And that is in a sense that God and Moshe are modeling a conversation, which in a sense is adversarial in a little, in, 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 in a way. And that's interesting that you be adversarial vis-a-vis God means Moshe, though I think the term we use now is Moshe pushes back a little bit, right? And, you know, I wonder, you say God, you know, God does get angry. Moshe says, you know, send someone else. And God says, you know, come on, but I'll send Aharon. But you wonder, once God decides to send Aharon and Moshe and Aharon are a team, you know, the Torah says, who Moshe vi Aharon, who Aharon u Moshe, 
And famously, Rashi says that it teaches us that they were equal. And that maybe, even though God did get angry, maybe this is an interesting model that, you know, that, that, that they needed both. That part of a, a understanding vulnerabilities is the fact that in that conversation between Moshe and God, God recognized Moshe's vulnerabilities or inadequacies, and maybe Moshe recognized his own inadequacies and vulnerabilities. And therefore, the fact that Aharon went along was a necessity, which I think also kind of tells us something about conversations, that sometimes conversations teach us something about ourselves, like you said. It's interesting, uh, um, the way you put it, uh, reminds me uh, an advice I read once in a book about negotiations, a how-to book to improve your uh, position in negotiations. And what they say there is that oftentimes when people come into a negotiation process with too concrete of a vision of what they want, they'll get bad results. Because if two parties come and they have a very concrete vision of what they want to get out of it, if they can't make those visions work together, then the answer will be no, and they'll just go their separate ways. Whereas when people come and what they share instead of the contours of a perfect position is what they need, what they want, what they're afraid of, if they open up and share different parts of themselves, then together the negotiating parties can form an arrangement or a, a picture that will work better than each individual vision that each party brought. So in a sense, when Moshe comes and shows his vulnerabilities, he opens the door, forgot to improve upon his original plan by bringing our own into it. And as you said, this will turn out to be extremely important moving forward because Moshe, by the very nature of his job, of needing to be so different and unique, he can't really bequeath his relationship with God, unique as it is, to anybody else. And Aharon fulfills that role of creating a dynasty, of making people work together harmoniously as a society. And in a sense, you can almost say that if, there, if it wasn't for that conversation in the beginning, maybe Aharon wouldn't have played that role. By opening up, by bringing himself and his vulnerability into the conversation, Moshe uh, improved upon God's plan, as, as sacrilegious as it may sound. And, you know, it's, it's almost... In order to see how valuable it is, I think it's worthwhile to contrast it with a different story in the Hebrew Bible. And that's a story we read on Yom Kippur, the day dedicated to tshuva and return, the conclusion of the process that we start in the month of Elul. And on that day, we read the story of Yonah, the biblical Jonah, who was entrusted with God, by God uh, with a prophecy. He was told to go and proclaim to the city Nineveh that uh, in 40 days, the city will be destroyed. And Yonah rejects the mission, but unlike Moshe, and unlike, for example, Isaiah or Jeremiah or yet Ezekiel even, he doesn't say that he's rejecting the mission. He doesn't complain. He doesn't present his position. Instead, he just runs away. The text tells us, the very first verses of the book of Jonah tell us that Jonah, he um, doesn't tell us what he says. He, he has no uh, verbal response to God's mission. Instead, he goes down. He goes down to the city Jaffa. He goes down to the ocean in a ship. He goes down to his cabin in the ship. He goes into solipsistic and silent state of sleep 
And even when a storm breaks out, he, he doesn't call out, he doesn't respond, he doesn't say anything. In a sense, the whole book of Jonah can be seen as God's attempt to cajole Jonah into having that conversation that Moshe, Isaiah, Ermiah, have with God when they have reservations, to get him to at least express his reservations and leave room for God to convince him otherwise. And um, when we see what happens when a person doesn't allow that, when we see what, that when Yonah doesn't leave room open, um, he becomes estranged from himself. He becomes silent. He, he loses himself in a sense. He, he, he's losing not only his own voice, but he's also becoming disconnected from his fellow man. His fellow men are suffering in the storm and screaming and are afraid. And he is sleeping in his cabin and they have to shake him awake and he doesn't volunteer anything. He doesn't help them. He doesn't, he's willing to let them throw him in the ocean, but he doesn't initiate any involvement with other people. When we see that, we see the cost of not bringing our vulnerabilities into the conversation, of not bringing ourselves fully into it. So I think, um, th I think there are a couple of ironies here. First of all, back to Moshe for a minute. Of course, it's ironic that Moshe's, one of Moshe's vulnerabilities is the fact that he can't speak, means that he can't have the conversation. We're talking about the importance of conversation, and Moshe improves on God's plan, specifically because Moshe doesn't have the ability to speak and the role of speaking in conversation. Mm -hmm. And the other idea that you brought up so so you know, so wonderfully in Yonah is the fact that when you refuse to have a conversation, it's not only if I refuse to have a conversation with you, if I refuse to, oh, we, the phrase we would use today is if I won't open up to you, it's not only that our relationship is going to, you know, is going to suffer, that I won't have the same relationship because I don't open up to you and you don't open up to me. But if I'm not able to open up to you, if our conversation is important enough, it might mean that I don't have the ability to open up to other people, to the world, to the, you know, to the, to the suffering of others. And I think that's what, you know, obviously not every conversation, when you have a conversation, you know, about what we're having for dinner, it doesn't necessarily have implications, you know, for the future of humanity. But obviously that's the beauty of Tanakh is that these conversations are bigger, you know, are bigger than themselves. And what you see from Yonah is that we need to be able to engage in these conversations because being able to open up is the ability to open up to the world. We need to be able to open up to one another and that's what Elul's about because by opening up to one another, we're opening up to the world. And of course, you know, it's always relevant, but somehow this year you kind of feel as if that's more relevant than ever. Yeah, and I think that um, part of the beauty of that is that you know, we live in a time when some of us believe in God, some of us don't believe in God. But I think that all of us um, can benefit from opening up ourselves to whatever lies beyond ourselves. And whether, whether I believe that it's God or whether somebody doesn't, when you are opening yourself up, when you remove the shell, when you allow your pain, your vulnerability, your weakness to be out there and visible, it changes your relationship with the entire world and it changes your ability to impact the world also and to, um, 
ironically by saying, I can't impact, I can't do it, I, I'm not good enough, I'm not adequate. But by placing our insecurities out there, we are opening the road and the channel of communication between ourselves and what's around us and allowing something greater uh, to take place within ourselves and within the world at large. I think that's, you know, that, that's really, a, you know, that's such an important idea. And I think it was, you know, it's interesting to begin the conversation with you about conversations and, the, and their relevance to Elul and to talk about difficult conversations, conversations that didn't necessarily end up the way the, you know, at least the way God thought they would end up at, you know, when he began the conversation. And that somehow those really open up the world of possibilities, the world of challenges, and the importance of what conversations were all about. I look forward, Rachel, to, con so you want to say one last thing, and then I'll say we're looking forward to continuing the conversation. I just want to add that, um, I just want to add that it's, um, if God, as portrayed in the Hebrew Bible, only wanted our compliance and obedience, the book of Jonah would have ended when Jonah finally actually went and proclaimed God's prophecy in Nineveh. But in fact, that's not where the book ends at all. And what we see after that is that God continues inflicting all kinds of experiences on Jonah and asking him, how do you feel? How do you feel? And then ends the, ends the book by saying, if you feel sorry for this bush that grew and disappeared, how do you expect me to feel about this city with all the people and animals that live in it? And in a sense, God is doing at the end of the book of Jonah what he did in the beginning. He reaches out to Jonah and invites him to vocalize, verbalize, make concrete his objections, his opinions. What Jonah chooses to do with it, we don't know. The book ends famously with a question. We don't know if Jonah was finally convinced or not convinced. But what we do see is that the entire book is all a movement towards conversation. It's all God's attempt not merely to get Jonah to do what he wants him to do, but to get him to speak up. And, you know, people often say, what does God want from me? What does God want from man? Maybe what God wants from us is to speak up, to raise our voice, to say what we want and who we are and what we feel and what we're afraid of. And especially at a time like now, when we're living through this historic horror, in a sense, um, speaking up, using our voice, bringing ourselves into the conversation is uh, priceless. Fantastic. Okay. I mean, um, on that note, I look forward to continuing the conversation next time. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you.